Thank you for joining the Broadway Drumming 101 podcast with your host, Clayton Craddock. Born and raised in Hastings on Hudson, New York, Clint DeGannon was six years old when he started playing drums. Clint studied drum set with many great teachers in high school, including the great Sonny Igo and Gary Chester. After moving to New York City, Clint met bassist Gordon Edwards at a jam session at Mikel's. Gordon introduced Clint to Cornell Dupree. This meeting led to many opportunities to perform and record with an incredible list of artists. Sissy Houston, Brooke Benton, John Tropea, the Manhattan Transfer, The Fab Foe, Lloyd Price, Bob James, Chuck Loeb, Michael Franks, Will Lee, Hiram Bullock, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Stuff, Tom Scott, Liza Minnelli, Phoebe Snow, Tony Conniff, Christopher Cross, The Blues Brothers, Take Six, Renee Fleming, Paula Cole, Donovan, Elvis Costello, Dionne Warwick, Jimmy Buffett, and the great Billy Preston, just to name a few. Clint was recently honored to be the drummer on the new Steven Spielberg remake of West Side Story and made a brief appearance in the actual movie as well. Clint held the drum chair for 13 Broadway musicals, including Beautiful, Hairspray, Catch Me If You Can, Bonnie and Clyde, Footloose, Jesus Christ Superstar, Rocky Horror Live, and many others. He originated the drum book for nine of these shows and played drums on both the movie Hairspray and the TV show Hairspray Live. Clint proudly endorses Yamaha drums, Zildjian cymbals, Promark drumsticks, and Attack drumheads. Ladies and gentlemen, Clint DeGannon. Welcome to Broadway Drumming 101. My guest today is the legendary Clint DeGannon. Thanks. Good to be here, Clayton. I'm glad you can do this. Uh, I see in behind you, you have something that's very interesting. You have two things, but I want to talk about the first thing that's right behind you. It's a poster of Manny's car wash. I remember going there several times to go to their blues jam session. Oh, were, did you, were you part of the, uh, the, the, I guess the, was there a house band at that time? The, the, if there was, I, I didn't know about that. The, the, when I played at Manny's, was, uh, it was a blues club, and, and you remember, and it was on the Upper East Side. Yes. Uh, I would play there with the band that I was working with at the time, which was the late, great Hiram Bullock. And we had a trio with uh, the great Will Lee, and uh, we wound up doing a live record there. And this poster behind me is Live at Manny's Car Wash is the name of the record. And... Uh, it was, uh, you know, a, a period of time. We had done uh, a, a number of gigs, and Hiram uh, was, you know, was a one in a row, just an amazing, amazing guitar player. And some people say one of the greatest, if not the greatest, since Hendrix. That's anyway. He, uh, it was a very creatively fertile stage, and you could kind of, and we were, you know. We we did things on that record and played songs on that record that we hadn't even rehearsed or never played before. Oh wow! So Hiram was in that phase, and Will uh, and Hiram go way back. I was kind of the new guy in the band, and uh, they could do kind of move the thing in any different direction they wanted to. Um, and we all sang, 
and that was part of it. Yeah, it was a, a, a you know, Hiram sang most of the leads, but uh, every now and then a lead line would go to uh, Will or me. And then when we did uh, uh, gigs in Japan and, you know, got more comfortable, that was kind of the early phase of that particular trio. Uh, then we would, you know, we would each sing songs, Hiram mostly, uh, but Will and I would also have a song or two to sing. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. Really, really special time for me. So not only Hiram Bullock, but the Blues Brothers, Blood, Sweat and Tears, Chuck Loeb, Curtis Stigers, Cornell Dupree, man, Sissy Houston, Edgar Winter. And that's just to name a few. And the shows that you've done, because this is basically dedicated to people that want to learn about Broadway musicals. Sure. You know, you, you were on Hairspray for many, many years. Uh, beautiful. Uh, and let me ask you one starting question. Did you, was your first Broadway show Footloose? No, uh, my first Broadway show was, was kind of a fluky thing that came, it was called Stardust and Stardust, Ah. you know, I was a kid, um, early twenties. Um, I had gone out with a, an, uh, I'd gone on a tour. Uh, and the, 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 the show was called the American dance machine. They may be around in one form or another now, but, uh, the American dance machine was, was, a a, a touring, they had a Broadway moment before I joined, but it's a, it was a touring show that took, uh, highlights of dances from different shows and pieced them together in one. And, uh, so great dancers and, um, the MD was a guy named James Rate, Jim Rate, uh, who's no longer with us. He wound up getting this show, Stardust. He said, can you do this off-Broadway show? I did. And it ran off-Broadway for, I don't know, maybe, I'm guessing now, a number of months, maybe six months, maybe maybe more, maybe eight months. And then it moved to Broadway uh, and lasted, you know, a couple months. And it was a review uh, and the show was uh, Mitchell, so, uh, lyricist Mitchell Parrish, all his songs, which included Stardust. And it was a, you know, that was that. And a- Andre DeShields was in it. I remember he, so this is a long, long time ago. He was one of maybe the four featured singers. And that's what it was. It was like a Smokey Joe's Cafe format where you introduce the thing, you sing the songs. And, and, and that was my first show. Well, let's go back to, your beginning as a drummer, as a musician, you started when you were six years old and you started, you, did you grow up in New York City or Westchester? Well, uh, yeah. So I spent the first year of my life in Brooklyn. Then we went to Cincinnati and uh, we were there for a few years, moved to Westchester, Hastings on Hudson when I was four. And at the time when we moved there, there, uh, my best, my best friend, you know, was at the street. He's still a very close friend of mine. His older brother played drums. He had a, um, his name is Pete Edelman. My, my buddy's Jeff. Anyway, he had a, uh, a, a champagne sparkle kit that was either Slingerland or Rogers. I can't remember. And he played, you know, rock beats. And, you know, he was, I would go over to the house and I would check him out. And I was fascinated. I mean, you probably have some similar thing, some bug that bit you where just the, the actual sort of physicality of the drums themselves, along with the primal nature of what it is, 
you know, just grabs you. Right. And, and, and that's when it grabbed me. Uh, I mean, at the time I was, he was playing, I was probably like four or five. And then my dad got me a couple of drums. It was like a bass drum and a snare drum, no pedal, no stands. And so I lay them on the floor and, and, with, and I sat on the floor and, you know, he gave me a pair of drumsticks and I would, you know, make beats on the bass drum lying on the floor and the snare drum lying on the floor. So <clears throat> ultimately I took lessons at the local music store that was at six or seven or something. So I understand you studied with Sonny Igo. Was that? Well, that, that if, if you fast forward, there was I, I had another teacher in between, uh, a, a local guy named Phil Grice. Uh, and then um, at a point when it was time to move on, um, at Hastings, there was a, 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 I have to mention this, this guy named Pete DeLuke. He was a mentor. He was uh, our stage band, concert band, and marching band teacher. Pete DeLuke. Uh, who's now retired, of course, but um, uh, he was a saxophone player and he had toured with like Stan Kenton and I think Woody Herman or, but some major big bands. So he had this love of teaching and he also was a real jazz musician. So it was so fortunate for me. Uh, But anyway, he plugged into like the local guys locally who were great, great players. So Gene Krupa, uh, Stan Getz, and Mel Lewis, right, were, were all in the periphery. <clears throat> uh, Gene was in Yonkers, Stan was in Irvington, and Mel Lewis was in Tarrytown. So Mel would come and occasionally sit down with me and, and, and show me some things. And I was a kid, you know, at the time. I mean, probably like eighth or ninth grade. When it came time to look for a teacher, uh, I said, can I study with you? He's like, no, Um, because he really was an unorthodox technical player, right? And he didn't teach much. And he, it wasn't what he was going to do. So he sent me to Sonny. You had to audition for Sonny. Wow. Uh, And Sonny turned people down. I mean, everybody wanted to study with Sonny. So uh, Sonny was was in the Henry Adler building. That was a building that was on 46th Street and had, uh, at one point or another, Ed Shaughnessy and Charlie Persip. And a bunch, but it was all drummers. Henry Adler, of course, was there, you know. Um, Sonny was at the very end of the hall, up some stairs. So I went there and, and you know, uh, sat down with my first time. And, you know, he said, play some, some, you know, some of this and play some of that. And he said, well, you know, Mel sent you and you obviously have talent, but you play like a pussycat. (laughs) Now, I remember the story differently. And, of course, Tommy and I have had discussions about this. I I remember him not not adding the word cat to the end. He thinks differently. Uh, well, I thought about differently, but anyway, Sonny insists that he didn't say that later on. But whatever, it was a. a I spent about five years studying with Sonny. So what did he, what do you think he meant by that? You played too soft. Uh, yeah, I think he meant that I didn't really have, uh, I didn't really have a a, 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 a technique. I, my hands were not developed enough. So there were, there was musicality, 
for a, you know, a guy that age, you know, however, I think I might've been 16 at the time or something, but, um, you know, so I, I would take the train in and, and study with him every week. Uh, and I, I worked with him, uh, for four or five years, um, even through college. And I also got a symphonic percussion, an orchestral percussion teacher at the time, a guy named Larry Wilson. Larry was a disciple of, of Saul Goodman's, and uh, so was the guy I ultimately studied with, which was Roland Koloff. He was the timpanist of the New York Philharmonic. So anyway, I was doing these things because at the time, when I, when I was planning when I went to college, playing drums uh, as a major, if you were a music major, uh, and your ticket was the main instrument was playing drum set in my periphery. Berkeley was the only answer. My folks were like, likely to get a fuller education. They were more about. So I went to the only place at the time that Koloff was teaching and it was a liberal arts education. Um, and it was a good one and, uh, studied with him. And then when I was out studied with, uh, Gary Chester, for a year or two, um, studied with Buster Bailey, who was many people consider like the greatest concert snare drummer. He was also in the Philharmonic for a couple of years. And ultimately, Michael Carvin, studied with him a little bit, a, a great jazz drummer. Those were my teachers. Uh, but, but, but I do want to tell you one thing. So uh, uh, in high school, uh, the first year I got into the stage band, which was a really good band, they were like competing in the Northeast. They, they had come in second two years in a row at Berkeley School of Music in a jazz band competition. By the time I got in there, Gene Krupa had already done, they, they had uh, annual benefit concerts for the kids. Uh, if they went, you know, they were gonna go to school, this would help them. There, were, there was money raised from these concerts. So the kids would play in their stage band and then these great artists would play. Unbelievable. So my first year, I was like, Gene Krupa's coming. And he couldn't come. But he had somebody drive a pair of his drumsticks to Hastings High School for the drummer that he'd never even met, <laughs> which was really presented you? on stage. You know, Gene Krupa would like to give these drumsticks to uh, the drummer. You know, what a sweet man, right? So ultimately, and, and Mel would come every year and play, and Stan Getz would play, and Dave Brubeck played. One year, Buddy Rich came. And I was a huge Buddy Rich fan. There was, there was a place called, he had a club called Buddy's Place. And but he had actually two, two, two locations for Buddy's Place. He would play there all the time. So imagine a club called Buddy's Place where you could see Buddy playing constantly, right? Where was, so where, the first, where was it? This one, one was on 60s, I want to say 61st Street and 2nd Avenue, somewhere right there. You had to walk up one flight of stairs and then you were there. At the time, he had, a, I want to say like a septet, which included Anthony Jackson, who was like, at the time, I think he may have been 18 or 19, you know. No older. Wow. It was an unbelievable band. Uh, and I was a kid. And, you know, 
sometimes Mel would take me to the Vanguard to see Thad Jones, Mel Lewis Orchestra, which ultimately became the Vanguard Orchestra. I had a rich high school experience, right? Uh, it, it was very nurturing. Um, so when, when I was in my junior year, time for this annual concert, Bloody Rich was a guest and Mel Lewis, and they played together on the stage. Anyway, Buddy was my idol, and I, you know, I was looking for some excuse to talk to. Him. So I had just played, and I, I went over. <laughs> I was like, "Mr. Rich, is there anything I can, you know, you know, a little kid going over the?" And he grabbed my hand, and he said, "Son, you're a great drummer. You keep playing." And if he had grabbed my hand and said, "Son, think about doing something else." <laughs> Because Buddy was notorious, you know, he had a temper and he, you know, by all accounts, he could be difficult. But that day, he, you know, I saw him holding babies. He was like smiling. He was the nicest, sweetest man. And uh, 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 that was my experience playing for Buddy. Um, so uh, 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 the next year, there was a great saxophonist a ranger named Frank Foster. He lived in Scarsdale and he brought me to uh, uh, a rehearsal in Harlem for, for some gig that was about to happen at Glen Island Casino. And he, you know, he was going to have me and this tenor player play, you know, on a tune or two at Glen Island Casino with his band. You know, it was like the most unbelievable thing, right? So we got to Glen Island Casino and who was the drummer that that I'm listening to and that is ultimately going to put his drumsticks down and have me come up and play Elvin Jones. Really? Really? Wow. Who was smiling and laughing. And, and I just remember getting behind the kit. Did you ever hear that Bill Cosby routine where, you know, it's about where he was, he, he was a drummer when he was younger and he played, he has to play Cherokee he sits in and he's playing ting, 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 ting. And his hand starts to get really tired and, you know, he feels like it's going to fall off in it. Well, <laughs> it wasn't Cherokee, but it was something like that. And I, 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 I had no idea where one was. I just knew where the pulse was and I was going like this. And Elvin was over there laughing and, you know, but, I mean, I, I tell you these things because uh, as we lead up to this other stuff, the fuel of being a musician, of being thrilled with jazz, uh, being thrilled with music, being nurtured, uh, studying, and, uh, and, and following conductor also, because I played in concert band, I played in orchestra in high school and all of that. All of it played in, I hadn't played a show yet. But I, I had uh, done a lot of playing, uh, and, uh, and, and that continued through, through, through college. When you were in high school, did you have dreams of being a rock star, playing in the Philharmonic, playing on Broadway, playing in jazz clubs? Did you have an ultimate goal, or was it you just wanted to play? It's a good, good question. I was thrilled with music. And I, I always loved, I, I knew I wanted to be a musician. And the drums were a vehicle because music was the bigger thing. But uh, I wasn't really cognizant of the, of the ways to make money. And at some point in high school, 
I, um, I got turned on to CTI, uh, which was a label that produced all this great music, and you, you know it. And they, they recorded all the stuff uh, at Rudy Van Gelder's place in Englewood, New Jersey, or Englewood Cliffs. Anyway, you know, you could hear uh, Bob James and Grover Washington and Freddie Hubbard and Jim Hall and Milt Jackson, all these great jazz artists. But it was, it was a predecessor to the fusion, I think, of uh, jazz and, and jazz and pop music, jazz and rock, jazz and R&B fusion sort of but anyway uh that's the first time and i was really into uh, um i was really into uh billy cobham at one point and i bought one of the records was a milt jackson record called sunflower i had little sunflower on it and herbie and uh all these great drum uh players were on it and Steve Gadd was on. I didn't know who Steve Gadd was, and I actually avoided listening to the track. I kept honing on Billy Cobb's tracks because he was he was playing with Mahavishnu and then ultimately had his own. Anyway, I heard Steve, and I was like, wow, even as a high school. And then I thought, you know what I really want to do is be a studio musician. Because there was something that was always more fascinating to me about playing in the recording studio and sounding good and plugging into all these different kinds of music. Uh, it was more fascinating to me than any other aspect of playing. And, and, and actually, honestly, remains so. So, you know, I mean, I love playing live. I love, I could sit in the studio all day, day after day. And, and in a way I wish that's, what New York still was, because there was a point when it was, you know, when guys were doing that. You know, yeah. some of the music musicians that I speak with on this podcast were part of that scene back then. Yeah. Uh, you know, eventually I like to speak to uh, somebody like Buddy Williams, who was like doing it all the time. Yeah. But uh, talking to Ray Marchica and, and other people, you know, he even uh, talked about the number that was part of Radio Registry, which I keep forgetting. 212 J U. J U J U two eighty eight hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Eight thousand. Larry Saltzman. Yeah, that might have been it. Larry Saltzman actually had it once as his email address. Just <laughs> to commemorate. It was <laughs> and if you know Larry, it's like, you know, yes. perfect. But he, you know, it in a way he was commemorating and celebrating that that uh you know, because it was such a such a, an abundant time. When you think about it, Clayton, you know, it wasn't that long ago that every note of music had to be made by people. I mean, we think of it as like, well, yeah, that's that's ancient. It's not. I mean, you know, stuff didn't start to automate really until the eighties. I, I understand that's 40 years ago. 40 years ago seems like a lifetime to many. 40 years is not that long ago in the scheme of things. And then ultimately, you know, you had drum machines that came in. And, and between that and many other things kind of killed the studio business that, as we know it. But at one point it was quite fruitful. Did you break into the studio scene in the 70s yeah, I, and 80s? I would say the answer to that question, quite honestly, is yes and no. So I, uh, 
I was never uh, as busy um, as because I was young, right? So as I as I came into that scene, it was already beginning to dwindle. But you know, I did my fair share of uh, not records as much as jingles. And there were companies that I would work for sometimes. Um, even wrote one. It even went national. It's Trident. I think it was Trident. Uh, but there were guys certainly that were doing more of that for longer than I was, but I did it long enough and enjoyed it long enough to have gotten a taste of what that really was. Uh, and then it, you know, it began to disappear as it began to disappear. Um, the prospect of doing shows became more uh, palatable for people who ordinarily would not have appeared on that scene you know, rhythm section players who were just too busy playing in the studios and live gigs and stuff like that. And there was really no reason to sort of uh, move in the direction of a show. It wasn't considered what it is now. And I, I must admit that I carry some of that with me, that, that sense, because we didn't celebrate. We never, you know, guys of my... Uh, age never really celebrated. It was commerce, and we were grateful to have it. And there was certainly some 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 music you could play that was better than others, and uh, and the level of musicians certainly went up. But we kind of knew what it was. You know what I equated to uh, when I was um, when I was doing jingles, and I was thrilled to get a jingle. It was the greatest thing in the world. I didn't give a shit that it was like a thirty second spot for you know peanut butter or whatever, <laughs> and, you know, you'd look around the room and it was like the, my heroes were there. They didn't want it. They, they, they were looking at their watches. It was the last place they wanted to be. They wanted to make money. It was about making money. Right. And they got the great players and they were happy to, to be able to make the money. But what they really wanted to do is play real music. Right. So in a way, I see the same uh, dichotomy, that same sort of thing, but the jingles uh, were ultimately replaced by shows for a bunch of us, and we were grateful and are grateful to have them, but we frame it for what it is now. You know, if you're an actor, um, a whole different animal. You're the performer. This is, this is what you're going for. And you flesh out a role and you do all that. When you're a musician, you're mostly tucked underneath a stage playing the same 30 songs eight times a week, right? So, you know, yes, you bring your whole self to it. You try, you know, you, you give it everything and we can talk about all those things. But let's be honest about what it is and what it isn't. It's a gig. You know, before you even go on, when I got Memphis, the musical, I think I might have said this on another podcast of mine. When I started seeing people coming in to sub for for George Mm -hmm. or for John Putnam, you know, or Mike Aarons before he left and all of the horn players, I was like, and I, I see Francisco Centeno. And then I learned that he played on some of the songs that I grew up listening to. And then I see the guy, uh, 
you know, Iris Siegel comes in and I'm like, he was on all the Kashif records that I listened to. And then, you know, people that have played with Steely Dan and, and I'm like, everyone is playing shows now. And I had to figure out, it's like, why? And then, you know, people that wanted to sub for me, or I was trying to get on the, to sub for me because I needed a black male person to sub for me. And I was asking people and a lot of people were like, yeah, I'll come down. And all the people that I idolized, they were like, they wanted to sub for me. I'm like, it's fascinating to, to know that there are so many great musicians that were part of that studio scene that are now doing Broadway. And the level of musicianship, as you can, as you know, is so high that, you have to, and I was like, man, I, <laughs> I had to step it up, and then, and I stepped it up from the beginning because it, it was my show, but I just wanted to be able to play at the same level as these people that I grew up listening to, and all these people are playing in pits now, and they still are, and it's just fascinating how uh, those people are doing that, but as as you say, it's it is a gig, but most of the time, yeah, the people that you the people that you just mentioned are some of the best musicians I've ever played with uh, anywhere. So I just did, uh, uh, well, I just worked with, 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 with Francisco this past weekend. We played uh, Paul Schaefer's symphony <clears throat> show. And <clears throat> we did one gig without him just before. And it wasn't, ha I mean, with respect, it just wasn't half the gig that it was with him. So he's... So here's something to think about. <clears throat> yes, uh, to your point, work is work, right? So, and whereas, you know, somebody like you and me might have come in at a, at a point when these guys ruled and we wanted to get into that scene, right? Uh, and, 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 and we'd be good at it, right? You know, I, I hope that that's what people thought of me as I was doing it. But so so now now we re, we reverse the thing, right? So now now you you're you're solidly uh, in the Broadway world, right? And I, I I'm solidly in the Broadway world, and uh, and people want to sub for us. Some people who are doing shows couldn't imagine, could never do what an Ira Siegel or a Francisco Centeno do. Don't, they haven't developed that area of their playing or, or any number of areas of their playing. So they could not sub for them in several other circumstances. And that will be another point I would love to discuss with you. But um, when you have people like that, though, and you have an MD and or composer and or orchestrator and all that, like you had a Harold Wheeler, right? You know, Harold uh, was the uh, was the orchestrator on Hairspray. Harold really understands. Lon Hoyt was the MD. Mark Shaman. These guys really understand great playing. So you can have good players who can get the job done. Then you can have great players who are going to bring something to this thing. It's going, to way, it's going to be way bigger than any of those people I just mentioned imagine. It's going to be bigger than that because, and that's why they call these people, you know, that's why, you know, 
Harold Wheeler puts the basic information on the page and expects a Francisco or, 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 or me or, a, or David Spinoza who played or John Harrington who played to make it, you know, more special than, than they could have conceived. Uh, and that, that's why they're smart people, you know. So anyway, it becomes really important for, for people to be incredibly well-rounded and to do stuff that's not Broadway so they can bring a point of view and experience and authenticity and creativity to, to a show that, that otherwise would not be forthcoming, you know. You asked a question earlier which, was, which reveals um, to a lot about probably my own, uh, my, my own trajectory and uh, what has worked for me and maybe what hasn't worked for me in the long run, <clears throat> which is uh, I wanted to be the best player I could. What did that mean? That meant like I, I had these heroes, right? We all have heroes. And, and to use those people as inspiration and to, 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 to develop and play in situations that demand a lot of you where you're the weakest link and you just get better. You just get better. You get your ass kicked. You go on the road. You play a million different kinds of 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 of, of, of gigs uh, anywhere with anybody all the time. Nothing is too good for you, and and you keep doing it. And you go sit in like you did at uh, at at at, at uh, um, Manny's, right? So so I did the same thing at McKell's, which is no longer around but Mikel's was a special club that was on 97 it's now a Whole Foods I think it's on 97th Street in Columbus uh, but uh, anyway it's it went through a few different uh, incarnations after that but Mikel's was was really special and I went and sat in there was a jam session like I think it was on Tuesday and it was co-led by the great Gordon Edwards who who was the leader of the band stuff and uh, you know we, we know and love stuff uh, I became a member of Stuff a number of years back. Stuff is still in existence. Uh, in and 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 Elliot Randall, who was a great is was and is a great guitar player, who lives in England and has been for a long time. He played reeling in the years on the Steely Dan. You know the Steely. He played uh, uh, solos on Fame. Uh, I think he was he was a, a, a great uh, guitar player in the New York scene. So anyway, these guys hired me. Right. Gordon ultimately put me in with Cornell Dupree and I, I ultimately went to tour with him, did a gig with the bottom line years earlier. Elliot, we started a band. Ultimately, you just you just do different gigs and one gig leads to another if you're good. You know, and then you keep growing, you keep growing. Now, you know, uh, as I as I as I was preparing for this interview, uh, Clayton, I was. I, I did something I haven't ever done, which is to, to, to type out what I did in my life, you know, uh, in my career, because I don't like to look back. It's not like a religion. I just, it doesn't interest me. It bores me, and I think it's going to bore everybody else. But what I, what I found is that the things that were show-related were just like other gigs. There were, there were gigs that came along, and I took the gigs. You know, they, I took the gigs because the gigs came my way. So one of the industries in New York was theater, 
and theater was a way to make money. And so, uh, you know, one off Broadway thing led to another on Broadway thing, et cetera, et cetera. But um, at every point, uh, especially when I had to sit down and, and, you know, create the book, right? Which is, you know, we could talk about that too. I'd love to talk about that. But when you do that, well, you've, you've already created parts over and over and over and over again in every situation because here's the fucking song. Play the song. How would you play to the song? You mean I have to tell you how to play the song? Then you suck. Let me call somebody else. I don't have to tell how to play the song. This is what we do. We're not supposed to have everybody feed us, you know. So, so you know, you hopefully, like when you, when you got the call to do uh, Ain't Too Proud, you had the wealth of knowledge already. You had played these songs. You were familiar with these songs. These songs were part of your DNA, right? Get me Clayton. Because Clayton's going to be the shit. He's going to play the thing as it's supposed to be played. We don't have to hold him by the hand. We don't have to say this fill is inappropriate. You know, we don't have to say, you know, you're not playing strong enough or you're not playing, uh, you know, whatever. Anyway, you get my point. You bring an authenticity to the chair. You bring your your smarts, and your your and the more the more capable you are, the more uh, experience you've had, the more chairs you'll be able to fill convincingly on or, uh, or, or on Broadway or having nothing to do with Broadway. You brought up something very interesting: creating a drum book for a musical, Michael Keller talked about this uh on the podcast when i interviewed him and he said that's one of the more fun parts about creating a show is that you get to be part of the whole creative process and as you brought up when you're starting a show it's well I, you didn't really bring it up but i'm going to bring it up as well you have Please. a pianist who's usually usually the musical director and they give you a piano vocal and you have a drum set and they're like five, six, seven, eight, and you're just gonna go, and you don't have a drum part written out. So as you uh, spoke about having played jazz, and you know getting presented Gene Krupa sticks, meeting Buddy Rich, playing in front of Elvin Jones, uh, playing in uh, bands like Stuff, and and sitting in at Mikel's and Manny's Car Wash and, and other places, you had a wealth of knowledge that you can just basically grab from and create a drum book on your own that is appropriate for the show that you're doing. And it's hard to get that, uh, that learn all those different things and getting the language of music if you just gone to college and played musicals and then want to actually create a show. Yes. Everybody listening, pay attention to what <laughs> you just said. It, it, it's, it's profound. Uh, it, it, Damien Bassman uh, said something very similar. It's like, you know, you have to go to the source of whatever. It's not really the same kind of thing, but he was talking about if you want to play uh, In the Heights, you have to know how to play the music that inspired In the Heights. But that, if you know how to play, you know, Latin music, 
and 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 funk and disco and blues and jazz and country and fusion again when you want to uh create your own show and if you get a call to do that then you'll have all that in order to move forward but let me ask you a question about creating a show did you create the show footloose uh back in i guess 1998 and 1999 i did yeah that was a that was a new show and uh so when it's a new show they have uh you know only uh let me see the orchestrator was a guy named Tom Snow who who had co-written a, a couple of songs uh on the Footloose uh not the show but the the soundtrack and for the movie uh, great guy and uh but you know again yeah ultimately well with Footloose you had a a, a songs that were m- m- recorded uh not all of them but a bunch of them that was kind of a unique circumstance though nobody told me what to play and uh people did were open but you know you can't take uh you can't take that great drum part from the actual title track and i messed with that just a little bit in retrospect i probably wouldn't have because it's perfect as it is. It's it's Bo Diddley, but with a twist. And I, I think Tris Imboden played drums on the original. And uh, Kenny uh, Loggins is very specific about it. That said, Kenny Loggins came to uh, uh, the early rehearsals. And, you know, that started with like a drum flurry. Was it in there when you uh, did the show? It started with just some drum stuff? Yes, Okay, so yeah, so you did this show too. So and 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 then I started the beat, and the beat was a little different. It was very similar, but it was a little different than what was on the record. And they were fine with it, and Kenny was fine with it, and and Tom was fine with it. Dean Pitchford, who had written the lyrics to every song that was in that show and every song that was in the movie and on the the movie soundtrack, was the writer. Uh, and he was cool with it. So, yes, the answer is yes. I created that book. That book. I, 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 I get a little annoyed by that, uh, the, the created that book, as you can probably tell. Because <laughs> Why? We, well, because I think there's a part of us that, 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 uh, that there, there, I, I am of two minds about this, Clayton. There, there's the part of me that says, that's exactly what we do every day as drummers, everywhere. So that we're suddenly congratulating ourselves and giving ourselves all this credit for playing parts that, that when you know the language, as you just articulated, should be intuitive, more or less, to the song that you're playing. It shouldn't be that big a deal that you're patting yourself on the back and going, look what I did, right? I created the book as if like, as if you wrote the song. It's different, right? It's just a part. If you put, if you put the, 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 you know, the, the, the slashes and chord symbols and, you know, you had a great guitar player come up with a part, he's creating the book too. But that's what we do as rhythm section players. I'm of that mind uh, set, but then there's a, also a part of me that does understand that there are people paid large sums of money to take the the creation you just made and 
and essentially, you know, could be transcribing it and putting it into those parts or things like it. And they're making money on it. And, you know, and there's something to be said for that. So, you know, that's one of those circumstances. But in most circumstances, you do have orchestrators and arrangers and they are paid. And as side men aren't uh, for for coming up with their parts. Anyway, you know, I'm going to it's not really a tangent, but it's interesting to think about it the way you said it. When you have a drum part like uh, Jeff Beccaro on Lowdown, you know, he starts out the drum part and it's, you know, there's two drum tracks on it. He's playing hi-hat, 16th note hi-hats on one side. And, you know, from what I understand from Larry Saltzman, uh, he was talking about that on the podcast that he has and how he was doing things to add things to it, but it's a signature part of the song to me. And just like the guitar uh, part in My Girl, uh that that introduction was basically it's it's something that's uh it's a signature part and should that guitar player who was a sideman in Motown should he get writing credits for that uh you know great drum intros you know does the drummer get a uh, writing credit for that is it is it part of the song no but it's like like you said it's what we do as musicians and whatever, like, like Steve Smith's part in, uh, don't stop believing. I mean, how unique is that? That's a big part of that song. Sure. Should he get songwriting credit for that? I don't necessarily think so, but it's like part of the song. It's just like, like you said, it's what we do. It, but at the same time, nowadays, from what I understand, if you're in the room and you say, you know, Hey, 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 <laughs> you're one of the 20 people that's supposed to get songwriting credits on a new song. It's like, you know, it's, valid. it's a valid point. And also I, from what I understand, I'm not, I'm not educated in this particular area, but my understanding is that guys now, um, uh, at times certainly who are programming beats are getting writers credit. Hmm. So there's been a change. So that's something maybe to be paying attention to because now it's being legitimized in a different, in a different area, in a different way. I, I mean, if you look at, let's say, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, that is right. the, I mean, it, I mean, if it wasn't for that, right. you know, and, and, and another drummer might have just come in and, okay, boom, ba, ba, da, 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 da. That's what I would have done. <laughs> I would. I mean, I would have done something, but certainly, you know. Now, uh, along those lines, who was it who uh, gave Anthony Jackson writing credit? Oh yeah, for the love of money. Was that the Isis? Yeah. Isis. Yeah, yeah, they gave him no, credit. No, the OJ's. OJ's. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. OJ's. Yeah, he got songwriting credit for that. I mean, that's that's a part of that song. So yeah, where 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 is the line drawn? Yeah. And it's funny, maybe we should be saying that, you know, we're not just drummers, we, we make beats for Broadway musicals. Well, there's a, there was a whole host of us uh, at one point that sat down um, and, and made this case uh, to 802, and I think made it very successfully. Uh, mm. So uh, when it came time, you know, and this is the problem also, and this, this goes off on a tangent a little, but, but with each negotiation, that comes up where there's an opportunity. What they're really fighting for is 
just to keep what you got, maybe get a little more so you can pay your medical bills. You know, so it's negotiations with teams of lawyers and like, yeah, but we need a, a, a higher contribution so we can have health insurance. And that kind of, you know, that then you kind of uh, you go, OK, well, so let's pick our battles. And unfortunately, you know, uh, lower on the list is is. Uh, so so in other words, we're acting like pussy cats. <laughs> Maybe I should edit that out. Uh. Yeah, well, it's important to us. It certainly is important to us. Oh, that's funny. I don't know. Well, yeah, it's 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 very interesting to talk about that stuff, but uh, to be seen in the future, we'll see yeah. how uh, how that all turns out. But yeah. you know, you know, if you're doing a new show, if you're on a workshop of a show, and you're in the room, you're creating stuff. There have been times where I think about, you know, should I just, you know, let them come up with the part? But I just can't do that. I just sit there. And the last workshop I did, again, I created the drum part. I'm just there to help the process along and be part of the creative team. I hear you. Uh, You know, I did a workshop and then it it became an um, we went to paper mill. It was uh, the, 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 in, in Paper Mill, the song of the show was called My Very Own British Invasion. Anyway, Lon Hoyt was the MD, and he did the very thing that I think um, uh, was done at uh, Waitress, which is I'm making you guys, uh, I guess, orchestrators, technically. I'm making you guys orchestrators, and you're going to get a little piece of this. And he did. But it had to come from, it has to come from some powerful place. And if they do that, then whatever form it's going to, you know, manifest itself in is potentially available. But it's, it's a hard, it's a hard fight for a side man alone. Yeah. When you were doing Footloose, I mean, that wasn't the, again, that wasn't your first show, but it was, was it a longer running show than the first one that you did? Oh. Yeah, uh, it was the first show that I had that would would have been considered a hit because I think it ran. I could be wrong, but I, I think it ran the better part of two years. And, uh, and even now, a show that runs a year is like a hit. You know, did that kind of establish you in the scene? I had done a, a one show in between. Um, well, I had done a couple shows in between, but one Broadway show in between called Street Corner Symphony. Street Corner Symphony was a Motownish review it only ran for a few months uh but uh uh the the director was the guy who who was responsible for three motenors and uh marion caffey i think is it anyway uh lon hoyt was the md and he brought me in but but miller uh, uh heard me play on that had recommended me for an off-broadway show which i did called violet which ultimately came to broadway um, and at that point I had sort of established my, uh, uh, ability to do this thing and, and do it in sort of more sort of, there were traditional shows, but these weren't traditional shows. These were rock, pop, funky, whatever, you know, that umbrella is. And, um, and so that, yes. That, that's when Footloose came along. And that. So it ran for the better part of two years. 
How did you go about keeping the show fresh? So uh, that's a that's a good question, and I I'm not sure there is an actual uh, um, uh, answer for that. But I'll, I'll I'll give you the 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 one that I can think of, which is. If you like what you hear on the show, subscribe to the Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter at broadwaydrumming101.substack.com. That's substack, S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K.com. The Broadway Drumming 101 newsletter is your one-stop shop for everything you'll need to know about playing drums for Broadway musicals. When you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll learn about what it takes to be a successful pit musician with content delivered directly to your email inbox two to three times a week. For $5 a month or $50 a year, you'll have a backstage pass to the world of a Broadway drummer playing on a hit show. As a paying subscriber, you'll receive behind-the-scenes access to the life of a musician who makes a living on Broadway. You'll also be able to read every post, not just those occasional free ones. You'll get access to all newsletter issues in the archives and have an ability to participate in subscriber-only comments and events. If you become a founding member for a gift of only $75, you'll receive discounted private drum lessons and a 25% discount on future promotional products. If you'd like to make a direct contribution to the production of this show, you can reach us at Venmo at Clayton-Craddock, Cash App at Syncopated, that's C-I-N-C-O-P-A-T-E-D, or PayPal at Clayton Craddock. Any amount of support will be appreciated. Thank you for listening. How did you go about keeping the show fresh? So uh, that's a that's a good question, and I I'm not sure there is an actual uh, um, uh, answer for that. But I'll, I'll I'll give you the 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 one that I can think of, which is. Whenever you do a gig, you bring your whole self to the gig. If you ever feel like you're phoning something in, that's bad. That means you're not, you're not thinking, uh, you're not focusing, and you're not, you're, not, uh, you're not keeping yourself to a, a standard, which is, you know. Now, are you going to have good days and bad days? Probably. Are you going to have days where you feel better? Of course. But, you know, I went to hear the Eagles about six months ago. Uh, 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 they did the Hotel California tour. Hotel California from the 70s, right? And, uh, and uh, these guys, mostly speaking of 70s, are in their 70s. This band sounded unbelievably good. It couldn't have sounded better. It was one of the best concerts I ever saw. So how does that, how does that work? You got, I mean, they're playing Life in the Fast Lane. There's a new kid in town. They're playing like all these songs that we listen to, oh, 50 years ago. So when you, you're talking about like you get a show, most shows don't, don't see beyond a month or two. If you're lucky, they do, but most don't. But if they do, you know, think about that shit. You know, think about like, you know, guys who are fortunate enough to be in the position to be playing the same song, you know, 
a year later, two years later, or even four years later, not, you know, forgetting about 40 years later, I, I would say, uh, so, so yes, you bring your, you, you know, how do you keep it fresh? The other part of it is get out of that hole, uh, under the stage, go play other gigs. It's not only just about getting out of the hole and, 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 and staying home and just, you know, chilling. I, I understand the value of that, but, um, go play other gigs, lose money, you know, lose money because in, 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 if, if that's what it takes and it probably will, uh, uh, but ultimately you're feeding your soul, you're feeding your brain, you're developing and you're bringing that to, to the, 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 the show. When you come back to it, you, you, you're going to make it sound a little better because you're a little fresher and you've got a little more and you have a little, you also have an overview uh, in a way that you might have lost just sitting there day after day after day. So that's, that's, that's part, that's part of the secret, I think. Is it kind of, kind of like absence makes the heart grow fonder? I think, I think so. I think so. And then, and there's also, you know, uh, you, you can appreciate what you have and you can contribute more to what you have. If you, if you're bringing in stuff that makes you better that fed your soul that that made you this much better as a musician so speaking of better november 15th the year 2000 i guess it was opening night of the rocky horror show oh my god clayton <laughs> just a wealth of knowledge here man it's all up in here every, every broadway show it's like no, i'm just kidding <laughs> oh man you, you do your homework <laughs> so tell me about the rocky horror show you know, Rocky Horror was my was the show after uh, Footloose. It was the first show. Uh, there were some significant things about it for me. It seemed kind of fun because um, for obvious reasons. And then uh, Joan Jett was in it. Uh, um, Dick Cavett was in it. They had all these guests in Dick Cavett's role. Dick Dick Cavett was the narrator, and he would come and go. But then they would have like Penn and Teller and uh, you know. Uh, Sally Jesse Raphael and uh, 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 what's his name? The great, uh, they had a bunch of great comedians anyway, but they had great music, great singers in that show. Um, Sebastian Bach came in at one point to do it. Uh, so it was rock and rollish from that era. Again, they said, you know, do, do, do what you want to do with this. So, uh, um, you know, it was one of the first shows I, I remember thinking, and I know I've heard you speak about, uh, the click before, uh, we, and I'd like to talk about that for a second, but it, it, I had an orientation to the click and I found, uh, that when there's so many people who weigh in on how fast or how slow something is, and this felt faster, and this, and everybody has their own, you know, depending on how tired they are and how much they ate and whatever, what kind of mood they're in, everybody has a different clock. I, I feel like in a Broadway circumstance, um, it is, uh, the, it's a problem solver. So I started, I asked the MD at Rocky Horror if I could 
me and Erio uh, O'Farrell, the, the bass player, if we could listen to a click on these songs, if I could say, he was like, sure. So I would activate the click and I was, I was happier with it. On Footloose, there wasn't one. And, and in fact, when I asked for it for the recording sessions, uh, I got, I got uh, absolutely not. I was like, you don't want to do this to a click? By the way, the music was done to a click, you know, that we're playing, you know, on this, those, those original songs. No, 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 it's not what we do. So, okay, but how do we get to that? Oh, Rocky Horror. So, uh, yeah, that ran until 9-11. Uh, and and uh, and 9/11, 9/11 uh, closed any shows that were operating that weren't wildly successful at the time. If you were doing okay, uh, it wasn't going to make it. It was a microcosm in terms of its longevity of what we experienced with with COVID and uh, and um, obviously severe, severe, severe in its own way but it you know once it happened then it was just a question of recovering people going back and it took them a while and that was that but it was a good experience you later went on uh later in 2002 to be the drummer for a new show called hairspray how did you go about getting that show thank you for listening to the broadway drumming 101 podcast Head over to the Broadway Drumming 101 YouTube page where you'll find unedited conversations that I've had with some of your favorite musicians. On the YouTube page, you're going to find bonus content that I don't feature on my Instagram page or here on the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and click on that little bell at the top so that you'll be notified when a new video is uploaded. Thank you for listening and stay tuned for more.